0: Thank you for listening to the Collective Church podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, and whether you call Collective your church home or you are just checking us out, we hope you are encouraged and inspired to take the next step in your journey toward the grace and truth of Jesus. For more information about Collective, you can visit us online at mycollective.church or follow us on social media at mycollectivechurch. Now, let's get into today's message. Good morning, Collective. Uh, I am back from my study break, and I am just so excited to be with you all today. For those of you who are new to Collective over the past few weeks, and you're wondering who the heck is that guy, I'm Michael, and I'm the lead pastor of this church. Uh, For the past few weeks, I've actually been on a study break, and this was an opportunity for me to rest and recharge, to plan and dream about the future of Collective
1: and to visit other
0: churches to share about church planting and really what God is doing here at this church. It was great, Uh, it was beyond needed. To be honest, I didn't really know that I needed a break. Um, My mentor, Carl Kuhl, who preached here a few weeks ago was like, when are you taking off this summer? And I'm like, I'm not, I'm just gonna power through. Um, But he convinced me to take a break and so it was really good for my physical health and my spiritual health and my mental health. And I can tell you, while it was hard to be away from Collective for five weeks, um, I feel great, and I'm so glad to be back. Before I get into today's teaching, I want to spend the first few minutes bragging about you all and this church. Now, try not to get embarrassed and blush too much, but you all are awesome. I want to start by talking about the staff here, and they don't know that I'm doing this, and so they will be embarrassed, but they'll get over it pretty quickly. Uh, so not including me, there are four additional staff members at Collective. There's Danielle, who leads Connections and Next Steps and local engagement. There's Bethany, who leads Collective Kids, which is birth through fifth grade. Today, if you even see it down the hallway, it's move-up day. Kids are moving out of uh, their other classrooms into new classrooms, it's a really big deal. Um, so it's a really cool thing planned for them. We have John Allen, who leads worship production, and media. And there's Tabby, who's my executive assistant, but also leads like 12 different teams at Collective. We essentially tell her, hey, create this team, make it functional, and then hand it off to someone else. And so you might not know all of them. You might not even know that you know them, but they're incredible. They care deeply about you and this church. They pray for you. They spend way more hours than what they're paid trying to figure out the best way to create space and environments where you all get to experience the life that Jesus offers. And I know it's really easy to take them for granted, but after visiting other churches, I realized just how lucky we are to have them. And so if your life has been changed by this church, it's because of the work that they do, right? They do everything they can to create space for me just to teach and lead. And so if you love this church or you feel like this church has impacted you, it's because of that staff. And so can we give them a big shout out this morning? (laughs) The second thing I learned is that our team, the people who wake up and get here early to make Collective happen are the best team on the planet. It takes about 45 people every single week to make this beast of a church run. But last week, I actually came back early. I was going to visit another church, and to be honest, I just got tired of visiting other churches. Uh, So my wife and I came to Collective, and this was only the second time we've ever been able to visit Collective. Uh, The first time was four days after Harper was born. I don't remember any of it, so I know I was here probably spacing out in the back trying to figure out what do you do with two kids. Um, But last week, we got to go and attend Collective. And as we attended last week, we watched as the team joyfully and passionately connected, engaged, and served. And these people give up a large chunk of their days and their Sundays and really their weeks so that we can worship, so that we can grow spiritually, so that we have the opportunity to have moments with God so that our kids can have a safe and fun environment. Now, I say this all the time to our staff, but if there was a church Olympics, which there's not, you would think that there is because churches like try to recreate everything. There's not a church Olympics. But if there was a church Olympics, it would be very lame. But at the same time, I would put the collective team up against any other church around because our team is that good, that humble, and that amazing. And so if you've been coming to collective for a while and you're wondering and you feel like this church is special, one of the reasons why is the people that get up every single Sunday before the sun's up to make this thing happen. and In my experiences with other churches over the last five weeks, preaching and teaching and talking about church planting, I realized that this place and this team is really special. So can we give it up for them as well? (laughs) Here's the third thing I learned while I was away. I am more thankful for you all than I ever realized. Um, Here's what I mean. I am so proud of this church. I've always been proud of this church. I wake up every day very thankful that I even just get to be a part of this church, let alone lead it. And I know that you all are wonderful people that care deeply about Collective and my family. But while I was on break, I watched as other pastors got beat down by complaints from people in their congregations. I watched as other pastors got worn out by people that expect an unhealthy amount from them and their family. And I watched as other pastors move closer to burnout because of unrealistic expectations. And that is not how I feel. You all love my family well. Uh, In fact, while I was gone, I got multiple cards and emails just from people just saying how much they appreciate my family and love my family. And it really did give us like a breath of fresh air while we were gone. I got to watch the video of Colin's baptism a few weeks ago. And it was so wonderful to see that before he was even dunked in the tub, people were going nuts. You all were cheering for him and specifically the guys that were up there with him. And I came back to a group of people who I know genuinely want to make a difference in this community and show people that Jesus truly is for them. And that really is a breath of fresh air. I recently read that most pastors burn out within the first three years of ministry. For church planters, one thing that I've learned is that it's actually before that because most churches don't make it beyond year two or maybe year three. But collective is the exception. And I truly believe that you all Are the exception so thank you for being that kind of community Um, thank you for being the anomaly when it comes to other churches as hard as it was to visit other churches and realize i really don't want to be at these i want to be home with my church family it was good to experience it good for me to learn Um, but i'm just so appreciative of you all and thank you for being the church that i actually long to come back to after breaks now All right, that's enough about how wonderful you are, like pat yourself on the back, you know, high-five your your neighbor, whatever you want. But I want to share one more thing with you all before, there you go, someone in the back. (laughs) It's always like the band, the band, (laughs) like we're awesome. Um, I want to share one more thing with you all before jumping in today. So over the past six weeks, Collective has averaged 297 people. Uh, In fact, what's incredible is Four of our largest Sundays ever, non-Easter and Christmas, have come in the past six weeks. And truly that's unheard of when it comes to churches in the summer. One thing we have learned about this church though is that it's actually weirdly normal for this church. Last summer we grew and I promised you all if we grow, we were gonna go to two services. And we grew, so we went to two services. And so one thing I would like to ask you all to be doing right now uh, is to be praying for this church. And this is something that the staff has been doing, um, and we actually had the leaders start praying a little bit ago. But we're asking our whole church to start praying for our next space. And so we don't know what that looks like. We don't know when it will be. What we do realize is that we will not be in West Frederick Middle School forever. We've talked about this before here on Sunday morning, that we're outgrowing this space. And at some point, we're gonna realize there's not enough space for the 32-year-olds that are back there, or there's not enough parking, or to be honest, there's not enough space in the lobby for you to feel like you're seen the way that we intentionally try to do every single week. And so I would like for you all, if you pray for this church, if you pray for us, if you are a praying person at all, or even if you wanna start praying now and you're not sure where to begin, I would like to ask you all to be praying for three things. Pray that God show us shows us where our next space should be, Pray that God gives us the resources to make it happen and pray that God continues to bring people into this church. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm actually gonna pray for that right now. I'm gonna jumpstart that and then I'll get into today's topic. Let's pray. God, thank you so much um, for this church. God, I think uh, sometimes it's, it's hard to realize how much you love a, a place, um, love a church, how much you love p- these people um, until you spend some time away. And so God, I'm just thankful that Uh, Collective is the type of church that you long to come back to, God, that I long to come back to. God, over the last six weeks, you've continued to do just incredible things, things beyond what we have even been dreaming about. And so, God, we're just praying now for our next step. God, we're praying uh, for the wisdom to find the right place, for the resources to get into that space. But, God, ultimately, that no matter what we do, it's to create more seats and more opportunities for people to know you and get connected to you and find life through you. So God, we pray that today. Um, God, thank you that we have the opportunity to even pray that type of prayer. Um, God, that I can stand up here and we can share about just incredible things that you're doing uh, in this church and in this city. And God, we just pray that you continue to do so much more, even beyond our wildest dreams. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Amen. So I am a huge Orioles fan and I'm not ashamed to admit that. Uh, We were 500 for the month of July this year, guys. We're We're gonna get there eventually. So I refuse to jump ship even though we're historically bad. I've had friends that when the Orioles started to kind of take that turn, they're like, we're Nats fans now, I'm not doing it. I'm an Orioles fan till I die. I'll even wear their stuff in public even though people (laughs) boo me regularly. But one of the reasons why I love them and have an undying uh, faithfulness to them is because of a trip of a lifetime that I got to take when I was in middle school. When I was in middle school, I got to go to Orioles spring training down in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Uh, But but the truth is, it almost didn't happen because my dad thought it was a scam. So one afternoon, while my dad was waiting in line to pay the cable bill, like pre-online banking that long ago, he was waiting in line, and he saw this little kiosk from Home Team Sports. And if you remember, before Masson, Home Team Sports was what the Orioles were on. And Home Team Sports had this contest that if you filled out this card and they drew your card, you'd have the opportunity to fly to Florida, all expenses paid, to watch the Orioles play in spring training. Now my dad isn't an enter a contest type of person, right? He's not one of those people that like everything he fills out and like he wins one out of a 1,000 and thinks he's lucky. Like my dad thinks everything is a scam, everything has a catch. He ultimately thinks everything's for telemarketers just to go and harass him. But for some reason in line that day, he decided to fill out this card. A few weeks after he had entered the contest, he'd already completely forgotten about it when he got a phone call from home team sports, but he didn't answer. Assuming they wanted more money from him, or as a telemarketer, or essentially they were just harassing him, he let it go to the answering machine. And they left a message saying that he had won the contest, and all he had to do was call back to claim the prize. But he didn't call back, right? He was sure it was a scam. He was sure there was a catch, but they called again and again again. Finally, after multiple voicemails, he called them back and they explained that he had actually won the all-expensive paid trip to Fort Lauderdale for him and another person, and while he was there, they would actually bring him on the field, he'd get to throw out the first pitch, and we'd get to go to an Orioles game, and they would cover every single part of it. And they told him that there was only one catch, and it was, you just had to show up at the airport and get on your flight. But he was skeptical. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't know, he's like thinking they're going to fly him somewhere else. <laughs> I remember uh, my dad eventually asked me to go with him, and I remember arriving in Florida in the middle of March. There was actually snow on the ground up in Virginia, and there was someone holding a sign that said Scott Bartlett. And it felt like it was from a movie, and so we walked up to them. We got into a car, again, pre-cell like, phones. <laughs> for those of you who are young enough to have apps that do these things for you, we actually literally got into strangers' cars because they had a sign with my dad's name on it. <laughs> but we get into this car, and they drive us to an Orioles spring training ga- game. My dad got to throw out the first pitch, and I'm gonna brag about my dad for a second. He got up there, and he zinged it in there, and I remember standing on the field with him, and the catcher at the time was a guy named Lenny Webster, if you're an Orioles fan, and he walks up, he hands the ball to my dad, and he looks at me, and he says, your dad's got some heat. And it's like (laughs) life-changing moment for me. Then we got to watch the game. I actually got my first foul ball ever from Jason Worth, who was an Orioles player at the time. And I'm just gonna start name dropping because I don't really care. But then after that we were invited to an after party with home team sports and we got to have dinner with Eddie Murray and Will Clark and BJ Serhoff and Mike Bordek and a ton of other players. It was unreal, it was a dream. There were no catches, there were no strings attached. We just had to say yes and get on a plane. It truly was that simple. Today, we're continuing our series called Ruin the Game, where we're spending time learning about how Jesus came to change religion, right? He came to change the way people saw God. He came to change the way people saw the church. He came to change the way that people saw each other. And today, we're gonna talk about how he came to make following him simpler. And quite possibly, the most famous story of this is found in Mark 12. And this is how that story begins, Mark 12, verse 28. Verse 28. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to the debate. He realized Jesus had answered well. Now let's pause there for a second. I'm going to give you a little bit of context. This happened to Jesus all the time. He'd perform a miracle. He would do something radical. And a crowd would gather around him and they'd start questioning him and debating him. Right before this moment in Mark 12 is actually what we talked about last week where Jesus came in and there's some things happening in the temple that shouldn't be happening. And so he turned over all these tables and he drove all these people out. And Ray uh, Cowan, who preached last week, he talked about that. And that's actually what happened that led to this moment. And so people are around Jesus and they're beginning to ask, who are you? They're asking him, what authority do you have in the temple? Why do you think you're so important? They wanted to know who is this man, C.S. Lewis is a famous theologian who once said that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or lord. And truly in the Bible when you read these interactions, this is what people wanted to know, Jesus, which one are you? So they begin questioning him, and after answering the questions well, this particular religious leader wants to ask him one more question that he thinks is unanswerable. Right? His goal is to trap Jesus. He wants to back Jesus into a corner. Ultimately, he wants to prove that Jesus is either a liar, or a lunatic. So he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So the religious leader asks of all the rules, which one matters the most? And what he's truly asking Jesus is that of all the 613 laws in the Old Testament, is there one that's better to obey than the rest? He's saying, Jesus, if you had to choose one, which one would it be? A.J. Jacobs is a writer he wrote a book called A Year of Living Biblically, where he tried to follow all 613 rules in the Old Testament. And guess what? He failed. In the book, he actually talks about how he felt like it would be impossible to do all of what God commanded in the Old Testament, and it left him feeling hopeless. And to be honest, maybe some of you, that's kind of been your experience with God. Like, that's what you feel like religion is, and that's how you feel today. Right? You feel like you can't do anything right, let alone anything, right? You feel like you're too messed up or too broken. That every time you try to do something that God asks you to do, you fall short in another way. And to be honest, like that's a way that I constantly feel. But the thing that A.J. Jacobs never connected to the Old Testament was that God saw this. God recognized that his people could not live up to those 613 rules. Instead of just letting them fail, instead of just letting them wallow, instead of letting them just bring down a path of destruction in their life, God sent his son to offer grace. And so the thing is, A.J. Jacobs never connected that. The the Old Testament, that that is hard to keep, and God recognizes that. You see, God knows that we're going to fall short, but instead of holding that against us, he gives us a solution. He sent Jesus to die on a cross for our sins so that when we fail, we have grace. Jesus came so that we don't have to be perfect, but instead when we put our faith in him and we are baptized, his perfection actually comes onto us, and yes, we will fail again, and yes, we will sin again, but Jesus offers endless second chances. Some of you struggle with Jesus because you think of the Bible as a book of rules and Jesus as a dictator, but that truly isn't the case at all. And while that's stopping you from putting your faith in him, you're missing the freedom that Jesus offers. Yes, he does teach us a better way to live, but again, that brings freedom. And the truth is, for some of you, it's time you experience that side of Jesus. A.J. Jacob spent so much time worrying about 613 commandments that he ignored grace. He never got to truly see the goodness of God. And so for some of you today who feel like you're in that place maybe you grew up in that type of church, my challenge to you is take a step toward the grace that Jesus offers. Stop focusing on 613 commandments and focus on the life that he offers, the freedom that he offers. And if you're ready to do that, let's have a conversation, right? Let's talk about it. Check off baptism on your connection card and let's chat. All right, back to the story. So Jesus replied, the most important commandment is this, Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And so what Jesus is doing is he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 6 in the Old Testament. It's this thing called the Shema. And the Shema is actually the most important part of a prayer service in Judaism. It's actually how they started off these services was reciting that verse. And I'm actually going to dig really deep into that in a few weeks. But Jesus says the greatest commandment, if you could follow one thing, it's love God with everything you've got. But then he continues. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. And so Jesus says, love God and love people. There is no commandment greater than that. In Matthew's version of the story, Jesus finishes his teaching by saying the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So Jesus teaches that if you love God and you love people, the truth is everything else will fall into place. You don't need to worry about 613 rules because if you just follow these two, you'll understand the heart of everything that God ever asked you to do. You'll understand everything that Jesus ever taught, and it really is that simple. When I was in college, I seriously started to struggle with church in my faith. Uh, I've shared it before, I went to a Christian school, but my senior year, I just stopped going to church, um, which didn't go well (laughs) while I was there. Uh, To be honest, I stopped reading my Bible unless it was for a grade, and there was a class tied to it, because I just got worn out when it came to religion and the baggage that came with it but it was this verse that kind of recentered me. In fact, it hit me so hard, I went and like two days later got it tattooed on my left arm because I realized that if I just focus on loving God and loving people, everything else will fall into place. I want to be more patient. I want to treat people better. I want to do a better job honoring my wife. I want to lead better. I want to stop worrying so much. And when I start to think about everything that I want to start or stop in my life, to be honest, I get overwhelmed and don't really do anything. But when I think about loving God and loving people, I know how to do that. I'm not perfect at it, but the good news is there's grace for that. So I just focus on these two things and let God move through that. And so there are two applications I want us to focus on today, and they really are simple. It's love God and love people. So let's start talking about loving God. What does it mean to love God? Right, does it mean to have the warm and fuzzies about God? Does it mean to prefer God over maybe some other thing? A few weeks ago, my family was up in Ohio, and we were hanging out with my best friend and his kids. And the first night we were in Ohio with them, we literally weren't doing anything. But Elise runs into the room. She's dressed as a princess. She has a full gown on, and she looks right at me, and she goes, this is the best day ever. And she sprints back to the other room. We had just driven six hours in a car. Like, this is not the best day ever. The next day... We're outside, we're at a splash pad. In the middle of playing, she ran by, and I heard her yell, this is the best day ever. The next day, <laughs> it was raining. There was a huge storm that came through Maryland. It hit us the next day. It's raining. We're stuck inside. We literally can't do anything. And I can hear from the other room yelling, this is the best day ever. Now, each day could have legitimately been the best day ever, but I doubt it. Because just the other day we were sitting in traffic and she heard a song that she likes and she told me, This is the best day ever. The truth is, Elise uses that phrase for everything. And you know, and you know this, but we do the same thing when it comes to the word love. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love the Orioles. I love pizza. They're all very different types of love that lead to very different types of action. So, what does it actually mean to love God? Well, this is what Jesus says in John 14. He's actually talking to a group of his followers and they're trying to figure out like, how do we love God? How do we do this thing? And this is what he says. In John 14, verse 15, he says this, if you love me, obey my commandments. Verse 21, he says, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. Verse 23, Jesus replied, all who love me will do what I say. Verse 24, anyone who doesn't love me Will not obey me. So here's what Jesus is saying Loving God is not just a feeling, it's about trust, it's about obedience. If you want to love God, you need to trust Him and follow His teaching. The problem is, we really don't want to do that, right? The reality is, we wish that we could love God the same way that we love pizza, but that isn't love. If I say to my wife uh, that I love her, but I don't do anything she ever asks me to do, do I really love her, or do I just enjoy her being around? And so Jesus teaches, if you love me, obey me. And listen, I know some of you are cringing right now because you don't like the word obey. I get that. That's me. In fact, my my counselor constantly reminds me that I have issues with authority. So obedience really isn't a word that I love. That is not in my sweet spot. But obedience isn't following the rules of a dictator. That's not what Jesus is asking us to do. What he's asking us to do is to keep God's commandments, to attend to them carefully, to take care of them. Here's a simpler way to put it. Obeying Jesus' commands means to copy the example that he sets. We want to copy and imitate who Jesus is. So the question is, what was Jesus' example? Well, he loved God. He trusted God. He spent time praying boldly and intentionally. He cared for lost and broken people. He spent time with outcasts. He led his disciples with an example that was actually worthy of being followed. He offered forgiveness for those who hurt him and betrayed him. He was baptized. This is how you love God, by following the example that Jesus set. So the first thing is to love God. And then Jesus says, the second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. And there are two parts to this answer that are really important to understand. The first is, who is your neighbor? In Luke 10, in the Bible, we actually see a similar interaction with Jesus where someone's questioning him and they're trying to figure out the same thing, what's the greatest commandment? And actually in this scenario, Jesus kind of turns the table and says, okay, you tell me what it is. And the guy responds, love God and love people. But then this is what the guy says in Luke 10, verse 29. The man, the religious leader, wanted to justify his actions so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's looking for a loophole, right? He's looking for a way out of loving people and trying to figure out who is outside of the love that God is commanding him to show. And we do that. Some of, some of us don't even love our literal neighbors, let alone people in our lives. We look for loopholes, We ask Jesus, can you tell me exactly who my neighbor is? And then we begin to plead with him. Please not him, please not him, please not him. Right, we begin to ask, please not them, anyone but them. Please not that coworker. Please not anyone who has that opinion. But Jesus responds to this question about who is my neighbor by sharing the story that's called the Good Samaritan. This is how the story goes. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he taught, he'd crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged him. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go go. And do the same. So who is your neighbor? Everyone. It's single mother next door. It's the homeless veteran that hasn't showered in weeks. It's the coworker that you can't stand. It's your family. It's the person with different political opinions than you. It's the person outside of this church, this city, and this country. It's the sinner and the outcast. It's the people that are far from God. When Jesus says neighbor, it comes with the broadest definition possible. And Jesus teaches in this story that one of the ways you are a good neighbor is to show people mercy. That means giving people what they don't deserve. It means taking care of people, bandaging, bandaging up their physical and emotional and spiritual wounds. It means meeting their needs. It means going out of your way to do so. It means sometimes inconveniencing ourselves and not approaching our relationships like we are the most important person in the world or in the room and treating others as such. Jesus says in John 15, 13, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. If you truly want to love people the way that Jesus does, you have to stop thinking that your life is worth more than theirs because Jesus never thought his life was more valuable than yours. You have to stop thinking that your time is more valuable. You have to stop thinking that your pain is more painful. You have to stop thinking that your hardships are harder. You have to treat others the way that you want to be treated. And so Jesus says, love your neighbor, but then he adds a qualifier. He says, as yourself. And when Jesus says that, and even when we hear that today, the truth is that kind of brings this whole entire thing to a screeching halt, because the truth is we don't really love ourselves. A recent study states that 85% of people struggle with self-worth. 85% of people struggle to believe that they are good enough that they are worthy of love, that they are worthy of time, that they're worthy of being noticed. 85%. And the reason we struggle to love other people is because we don't really love ourselves. You believe that you are not good enough. You believe you are defined by your failures. You believe that no one cares about you. You believe that you will never amount to anything. My favorite album out right now is called The Search by a rapper named NF. And one of the songs on his new album is called Hate Myself. And this is what he writes. He writes, I don't see you like I should. You look so misunderstood and I wish I could help, but it's hard when I hate myself. Pray to God with my arms open. If this is it, then I feel hopeless and I wish I could help, but it's hard when I hate myself. In order to love other people as yourself, you have to love Yourself, But in order to love yourself, you have to realize that your value doesn't come from anything but God. It doesn't come from your career. It doesn't come from being married and having kids. It doesn't come from the amount of money that you have, the car you drive, the house you own. It doesn't come from what she said about you, what he did to you, or what you did to yourself. It comes from a God who loves you and believes that you are worth everything, even his own son. Jesus thinks you are so valuable that he gave up his own life for yours so you could have a relationship with God. And there's no greater love than that. That is where you get your value from. You need to love yourself based on God's love for you, and that love is greater than anything that you'll ever get in the world. And when you function out of that place, then you can love others in a way that's truly life-changing. After Jesus answers the religious leader in Mark 12, this is how the rest of the story plays out. The teacher of religious law replied, well said teacher, you have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. Imagine being Jesus in that moment. Like This guy's like, you did it right. He's like, I'm I'm Jesus, okay, fine. But the guy, he just keeps talking. He says, and I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. So this religious leader is doing, he's referencing a practice in the Old Testament that Jewish people did to honor God. He's saying it is more important to love God and love other people than anything else you can do because burnt offering and sacrifices are kind of the top of that list. But this is what happens at the end. Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, some of you are just like this guy in the story. You understand what God is saying. The question is, what are you gonna do about it? You see, this guy knew that the best thing that he could do was love God and love people. He answered that to Jesus, which would have been a hard answer to give right on the spot. But Jesus' response is, you are not far from the kingdom of God, right? The, The truth is, he wasn't there yet. The truth is, he actually loved 613 commandments more than he loved the greatest commandment. And the truth about this religious leader is that he had the knowledge, but his actions didn't connect. He was close, but he wasn't there yet. But Jesus teaches when we choose to live this way, when we choose to love God, and love people, like truly, authentically, intentionally live this way. Jesus teaches that when that happens, we experience the kingdom of God. And so Jesus says the greatest commandments are to love God and love your neighbor as yourself, and everything else hinges on that. And it really is that simple. Let's pray. God... um, please help us realize that following you really can be that simple. God, I think sometimes we get tied up in, in rules and tradition. God, we get tied up in denominations. We get tied up in uh, really like baggage that we carry with us. But God, time and time again, we read you teaching other people to love God and love people. God, I just pray today for the 85% who struggle with self-worth, God, that today can be a breath of fresh air for them, God, that they realize their value doesn't come from what other people have said or what other people have done, but it comes strictly from you and you love them, you know them, you care about them, God, that even though uh, we fall short and even though we sin, and even though we're not perfect and even though we continue to mess up, um, God, that love never changes, God, I pray that we can function in that place, God, that we can love people really the way that you love us, and because of that, they get to experience life the way that we do. God, help us live this out in our lives. God, help us actually do it. God, give us opportunities this week um, to trust you, and God, give us opportunities this week to love other people in ways that really are life-changing. God, we love you and pray these things in your name.